Welcome to Lit Sci Pod, the literature and science podcast, with your hosts, me, Dr. Laura Ludke, and Dr. Catherine Charlwood. It's fair to say that these are unusual times. Originally, this episode was going to be on a different topic and recorded at the Science Museum in London. Needless to say, that isn't what ended up happening. No, in fact, this is a podcast of three locations, as I'm in Reading, Catherine is in Liverpool, and our guest is in Birmingham. Happily, we live in a connected world where remote podcasting is possible. Rather than avoid the topic at hand, we thought that a literature and science podcast is a good place to think about some of the complex and compromised ideas that are at play. Because the two cultures that we keep talking about, even as we wish that we could all break free of the mind chains that the phrase the two cultures falsely indicates, are in greater tension than ever. People are desperate to hear the scientific evidence for whatever is being reported about COVID-19 on the news this hour, to understand the scientific basis for this policy or that policy. Loved ones are asking us to cite our sources as we ask them to protect themselves. In the current crisis, we've fallen back on the authority position of science as the subject that will tell us what to do. Experts are being called in for left, right and centre, and the public is outraged when their views diverge. But there's another group of people who are anything but surprised by this divergence of opinion among scientists and healthcare professionals those who study, teach and research the history of medicine. Here's an interdisciplinary field which has long been looking at how science, or perhaps more particularly understandings of science, have been inflected by social beliefs, wants and needs. I think the crucial phrase there is understandings of science, right? Because while we may want science to come up with the answer, even if it can... There's a problem of, of how you translate empirical findings into messages that impact societal behaviour in a useful, meaningful way. And this is what we're seeing right now. There are whole professions built around science communication and the writing of so-called popular science to allow for this understanding process. Absolutely. As we see in Kerry Nixon's recent opinion piece for CNN, The Way We Talk About Coronavirus Matters, because the way we talk about diseases can actually alter how diseases spread. As Nixon notes, numerous outbreaks throughout history have demonstrated, for instance, that when society hopes that a disease will stay ensconced in some sort of other population, humanity creates what I call a social spillover event. The I here, of course, is Nixon. She cites the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and the assumption that AIDS was restricted to gay men and syphilis in the 1880s where the belief that only sex workers spread it, not their customers, caused much wider spreading of the disease and if this belief hadn't taken hold. Yes, so, so one of the things that the literature side of the Literature and Science Partnership can bring is increased attention to the words we use to talk about disease and the import that language has. Certain terms, as we have seen in recent days, can have a hugely inflammatory effect. Language can be used to blame certain groups, to encourage attempted race-based ring-fencing of what is clearly a global pandemic. Now more than ever, we need to be reading things critically. So in the media and social media, we've seen a number of comparisons being made with the Blitz, Germany's bomb campaign against Britain between September 1940 and May 1941, during which approximately 40,000 civilians died. These comparisons have appealed to the Blitz spirit and have made reference to the now ubiquitous poster Keep Calm and Carry On, 
produced by the Ministry of Information in 1939. There have been an equal number of criticisms of these unhelpful analogies, such as those made by Alice Bennett and Susan Walker on Twitter. These interventions have reminded us of important scholarship exploring the Ministry of Information's role in informing the home front during the Second World War, and have reminded us of the actual history of that infamous Keep Calm poster, as Bex Lewis has done in her 2017 monograph Keep Calm and Carry On, The Truth Behind the Poster. As Lewis and Walker explain, until the poster was rediscovered in a box of books at Barter Books in Alnwick in 2001, it had largely been forgotten. Looking back, it was perhaps not so expected that the poster's slogan caught the public's attention, as it has been given a new life through a plethora of objects sold in everywhere from pound shops to garden centres and souvenir shops, even becoming a popular internet meme. Epitomised, no doubt, through its iteration, keep calm and carry on shopping. Indeed, not bad for a poster which was created for use during an invasion that never happened. I think it says more about us, our society now, and our nostalgia for a collective experience we've actually misunderstood than it does about Britain during the Second World War. Yes, and what I have found particularly interesting about these analogies that use the Second World War as a point of historical comparison with the current pandemic crisis in the UK and around the world is the way in which certain countries have resisted imposing restrictions on movement and resources out of a reverence for the principle of a liberal democracy in a way that mirrors discussion about wartime restrictions over 80 years ago. This is certainly sounding familiar. The Air Ride Precaution Department, known as the ARP for short, was established in the mid-1930s and it began calling for the adoption of strict lighting restrictions as early as 1935. The ensuing discussion was not about whether to impose these restrictions, but how. In Britain, once imposed, the blackout was maintained through both encouragement and enforcement. The ARP produced a number of posters and leaflets that alongside materials produced by organisations like British Railways, London Transport, the Ministry of War Transport, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, the Ministry of Information, and the National Safety First Association served to instruct the general public as to what was proper, moral, and polite behaviour. Wear or carry white, let your eyes adjust to the darkness, eat carrots to improve your vision, pay attention in traffic, don't wave torches to flag buses, and, most directly, look out! We're seeing a number of important public health slogans emerge in response to COVID-19, such as flatten the curve or stay home, save lives, proliferated and amplified across social media. Exactly. And it is interesting to see how these slogans vary across different countries. But one of the overlooked aspects of these wartime efforts, especially in the media's often superficial treatments of blitz spirit, is just how much enforcement was needed. ARP wardens, like T.S. Eliot, were responsible for enforcing the restrictions and reporting offences. According to Angus Calder in his thesis on this topic, in 1943, there were over 110,000 cases involving lighting offences, which was an offending rate of at least 1 in 50 people. So the more you look into it, it seems that the Blitz really opposes our ideas and ideals of it. It was an enforced, not volunteered behaviour, and, crucially, Blitz spirit relied on the community pulling together by gathering together, sheltering as a collective, which is precisely the opposite of what we now need to do. So by all means, pull together as a community, buy locally, online, but still, don't panic buy or hoard, and use the technology at your disposal to stay connected. Absolutely.
On the 21st of March, the daily Google Doodle celebrated the Hungarian obstetrician Dr. Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, known to many in the history of medicine community for his work on the contagion of postpartum septic diseases. And when I worked at the Museum of Healthcare at Kingston in Ontario, one of the objects I researched as part of the From the Collection online exhibition I coordinated was a midwifery wash basin. Historical objects offer us a hands-on approach to learning about different times, so I thought we could talk about Semmelweis's basin. Or hands-off in this case, since we can no longer, or should no longer, touch anything. But there's still a lot we can do with historical objects from afar, and museums worldwide are pointing would-be visitors to their virtual tours, online collections and the like. So, in 1847, while he was working in Vienna's first obstetrical clinic, Semmelweis observed that the doctor's wards had three times the maternal mortality rate of the midwives' wards. After careful study, Semmelweis noticed that interns working in the doctor's wards also spent time performing autopsies and cadavers, but the midwives did not do this. He concluded that the interns must be carrying out some sort of cadaverous material in their hands, which was infecting the female patients. He decided to introduce the preventative procedure of hand washing with chlorinated lime solutions contained in basins for interns who performed autopsies, a sensible procedure we'd think now. This immediately reduced the incidence of fatal purpural fever from about 10% to less than 4%. However, because of the way in which diseases were understood at the time, his hypothesis and practices were largely discounted. Only decades later, when Louis Pasteur developed germ theory, was Semmelweis's work finally accepted and put into practice on a wider scale. Listeners to the podcast can explore the Museum of Healthcare's From the Collection exhibition online, and we'll post the link in the episode details Speaking of hands-on and hand-washing, do you think it's time for the new LitSciPod public service announcement? No, no, I don't think it's the time for the new LitSciPod public service announcements because our listeners already understand the importance of hand-washing and very likely they also understand the importance of social distancing and self-isolation. So we've talked about hand-washing, but we haven't talked about how we can cope and indeed attempt to thrive alone together. How are you dealing with social distancing, Catherine? I'm turning to Victorian literature. Quelle surprise! I am too, and have begun rereading Middlemarch with a friend in a socially distanced book club. Well, so I'm reading Victorian literature for pleasure, yes, but also Victorian novels have a language to help us understand what's happening right now. Amy Davidson Sorkin's New Yorker article, The Fever Room, Epidemics and Social Distancing in Bleak House and Jane Eyre, returns us to those moments in Victorian novels when characters are seen avoiding each other in order not to pass on disease. This is one of the things that literature can do for us at a time like this, is to give us a framework to map our experiences onto, or to understand them by. We're practising social distancing because the statistics tell us we must do so, but the statistics don't help us negotiate the emotional burden such a practice puts on us, We have to go elsewhere to a different medium for that. So when Esther Summerson of Bleak House shuts herself and Charlie in, her friend and confidant Ada is on the other side of the door and Esther, quote, heard her calling to me that I was cruel and did not love her. So the hardships of social distancing are evident, understandable and understood. Dickens' treatment of disease in Bleak House can teach us about how disease exasperates society's inequalities. While the smallpox narrative in Bleak House primarily focuses on the experiences of Esther Summerson and her friend Charlie, 
Harold Skimpole's callous dismissal of Joe, the seriously ill crossing sweeper, exposes the disparity of consequences between the most privileged in society and those most vulnerable. Skimpole argues against his friend's proposal to take Joe into their care, while he suffers from a bad sort of fever, reasoning that if you put him in the road, you only put him where he was before, he will be no worse off than he was. But this thinking prioritizes his own immediate safety and that of his friends, while not only endangering Joe, but society as a whole. For in turning Joe out, they ensure that he will be moved on and moved on again, spreading that bad sort of fever further than had they limited their contact with him while providing palliative care. In this instance, Skimpole is not just careless, but callous. There's no social safety net for those like Joe. Even today, we are only as safe as the most precarious in our society. Definitely. And I think one of the really fascinating things that is happening right now and that people are possibly unnerved by is that actually the Victorians no longer seem so distant from us, despite our technological advances, despite all our scientific knowledge that has grown so much since the Industrial Revolution. Because if you actually look back at newspaper reports, there's a really brief report on the typhus epidemic in Cardiff's Evening Times newspaper of the 17th of December 1896. And it notes that in Pola, which is a city in modern day Croatia, but in 1896 was, was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, quote, the streets are almost deserted and everyone who is able is leaving the town. All amusements and meetings, even in the open air, are prohibited. And like the staff shortages we are now hearing about in modern day hospitals around the world, this 1896 report also notes that, quote, 700 patients are now in the Naval Hospital, where there are only six male and eight female attendants. They use this example not to scare, but to remind us that such situations have happened before and lessons might be learned from looking to history. Or even just that we might feel less isolated if we acknowledge that our ever-present and seemingly very of the present fears are in fact shared by our forebears. Yes, and while this is an exceptional situation for this generation, if we consider human beings on a continuum, then we'll find plenty of fellow folk who have faced our fears, sought advice, scrambled for modes of understanding their experience, and have ultimately survived. Dr. Emily Taylor Brown is an early career researcher specializing in the history of science and culture. Following a joint honors BSc in biology and English at Keele University, Emily undertook a master's by research looking at depictions of parasitism in 19th century medicine, literature, and culture. She took her Wolfson Foundation funded PhD at the University of Warwick, researching the significant exchanges between parasitology and British literary culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Emily won the BSLS Journal of Literature and Science Essay Prize in 2014 for her work on parasitologists and their literary imaginations. Following an early career fellowship with Warwick's Institute of Advanced Studies, Emily joined the Diseases of Modern Life Project at the University of Oxford as a postdoctoral fellow. Her work on that European Research Council-funded project looks at the Victorian interest in gut health in light of modern studies on the microbiome. Welcome, Millie. Lovely to have you with us, if virtually. It's a privilege to be here. This is a podcast from quarantine that we're doing right now. I am in self-isolation. So first of all, we're, we're going to ask you to take the B33 challenge. Can you describe your research for us broadly, then in three points, and finally in three words? 
Broadly, I'm interested in the embeddedness of science in culture, how our understandings of the world are formed by entanglements between different forms of knowledge or different ways of knowing. So I'm writing two books. The first one is called Empire Under the Microscope, and it looks at how empire was materially and imaginatively shaped by its engagements with tropical medicine. Parasitologists use the stories and networks of empire to bolster their professional identities, and this in turn imaginatively and materially produced empire in new ways. Objects and texts are things I'm interested in. So the networks are, you know, who is going where, what kind of research they're doing, who's getting funded to do what kind of research, what kind of equipment they're uh, using and who they're speaking to, uh, but also the kinds of texts that they're producing and how those texts are circulating. And then I'm also interested in the stories that they tell about the research and about themselves. Tropical medicine was really invested in empire. There were two schools of tropical medicine that were established at the end of the 19th century, the London and Liverpool schools of tropical medicine. And one of them was set up by Joseph Chamberlain, then Secretary of State for the Colonies. And the other one by a group of ship owners um, headed by Alfred Lewis Jones. And the reason those ship owners decided that they needed a school for tropical medicine or that Britain needed one is because they were doing a lot of trade with the British colonies in Africa and they were noticing that malaria was really affecting their commercial viability of, of trading with the colonies. So you see the same kind of rhetoric uh, in medical lectures, in articles, in public speeches, and in the letters and notebooks of parasitologists, rhetoric that I've called uh, the Knights of Science rhetoric, using language to think about their research and themselves, using this kind of chivalric form of military engagement that's drawn from British myths of nationhood, like the tales of King Arthur. So what this does is it frames their research as being in the service of empire, when they go on expeditions to tropical mm -hmm. countries to research uh, those diseases. They talk about going on quests, and they also talk about um, looking for the Holy Grail, which usually means the cure for malaria. And all of this self-fashioning and storytelling is framing tropical medicine as a science of Britain and a science of empire. So really, this is in many ways about identity. Which brings me on to my second book, which is also about identity. And the second book is called Possessing Our Own Bodies, Gut Health in Victorian Culture. And this was part of the Diseases of Modern Life project. And it's informed by microbiome studies, which is a field that looks at the flora and fauna that live in our guts and the influence that these microorganisms might have on, well, kind of really everything from our immune health to whether or not we gain weight, to how well we sleep, to how we respond to pharmaceutical drugs, including chemotherapies, and even our um, mental and emotional well-being. This kind of research, which has kind of been kind of burgeoning in the last maybe like 12 years, is suggesting that we kind of radically reconsider, reimagine, rethink what it means to be human. And now we're thinking about being human in terms of an ecosystem, right? So we're an ecosystem containing lots of different microorganisms that are actually fundamental to our normal functioning and to our health. This seems like a really radical idea, but it's not. In the end of the 19th century, they were also really interested in these kind of symbiotic relationships between humans and microorganisms. Um, and you have all these kinds of interesting metaphors also being posited around this time. One of them is a homo and co, like a law firm with like um, one main stakeholder and numberless small partners. And the, the title to my book is taken from quotation in 1842, which I, which I just think is really interesting. So that the, the title of the book is possessing our own bodies. And the quotation that it comes from 
says, there is nothing more unfounded or less capable of being sustained than the right to which man assumes to the exclusive possession of his own body. So my book essentially asks, what did gut health mean to the Victorians? Um, And also, why should we care? That's always the question for humanities books, right? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why should we care? When I say that I work on gut health in the 19th century, one of the common responses to that is some sort of wry smile and or lack thereof, which I think is funny, obviously, but I mean, the Victorian period has a bit of a bad rap and it's not all just poverty and dysentery. Actually, there are some very sophisticated engagements with gastrointestinal health in this period. Where do people get their gut health in the 19th century? They got it from the doctor, obviously, but also from things being passed down through family groups, possibly from medical textbooks, but more likely from things like domestic health manuals or self-educators, from magazines, from family and general interest periodicals, and also, interestingly, I think, from cookery books, and also from novels and poems. One of the things I'm really interested in is the hybrid nature of texts that are to do with gut health in this period. So, for example, right here, I've got this this book called Family Secrets, dangers, you know, posed by the damage you can do to your body by overeating or by eating the wrong kinds of foods and that. But what's really interesting about this is it is essentially a kind of domestic health manual, a medical text for families, but all the chapters are little stories with characters in. Um, Another one that I look at is called Memoirs of a Stomach, which was published in 1853. And It's ostensibly an autobiography written by a human stomach, which of course it wasn't. It was written by a lawyer, actually, and writer called Sidney Whiting. The reason it's really interesting is it is told as this kind of fictional autobiography of an inanimate object, but it also includes uh, medical information. It even has footnotes to medical texts and medical lectures. It also has little poems and mini plays, quite didactic kind of takedowns of the medical profession. It includes like real prescriptions from pharmacists that you can go out and get. But also is this this story of the stomach and what happens when he um, encounters tobacco and alcohol and love and marriage and eventually old age. Although like stomachs are not what they can't write autobiographies but there is a sense that sometimes you feel like your stomach is is talking to you and certainly I'm one of these people who will say shush to my stomach when it makes noises at inappropriate moments. Yeah and in this novel but also generally in lots of texts in the 19th century they also play on this parallel between physical digestion and mental digestion the idea of things not sitting right in your mind and this also has a medical it's not just a metaphor uh, like a metaphorical use of language there's also a sense in which sensory shocks and things like bad news and being emotionally overwhelmed can actually affect your digestion and give you indigestion chronic indigestion and um, but also if you don't eat properly and you give yourself indigestion then you find it harder to think straight thoughts as it were something people are struggling with now indeed it's good and broad i like it and move on to the to the three points so i guess what i'm interested in is the authority of science and how it's constructed uh, and the kind of self-fashioning that goes on in the construction of that authority uh, science as always being embedded um, in culture and how it's it's meaningless, really, to divorce it from that culture. 
you know, statistics uh, we think of as being this kind of objective form of knowledge, but actually statistics are incredibly liable to, to narrative. They have to be framed to be given any meaning at all, but it does mean that they often can be framed, the same set of statistics can be framed in different ways to tell different stories. And the third point, I guess, is SciComm or science communication as a problem of how different ways of knowing come together and what happens when they do. How do we write SciComm that is engaging and meaningful, uh, but also accessible and um, accurate? Okay, are we ready for the three words? I think I'm probably going to take a leaf out of Will Tatterstill's book and do a sentence. Everything is narrativized. Yes. I love it. So unlike many literature and science scholars or history of medicine scholars, your first degree was a joint honours in English and biology. From your vantage point, having studied both STEM and arts and humanities, what do you see as the differences and what are the points of alignment between them? That is a big question, I think. We do only ask big questions here. Uh, I think it depends on your definition of literature and science. Um, which is something I struggle with and I ask myself every day during my research is, is what is literature and what is science. During my degree, which is a dual honours, as you mentioned, in English literature and biology, I would, you know, sit in my introduction to early modern tragedy seminar uh, and I'd be doing some close reading. I'd be looking at language and how it shapes meaning, trying to hold multiple, maybe conflicting ideas in my mind at once. Uh, So I think it was really teaching me how to think in new ways. And then I would like cross campus and put on a lab coat, go into the lab and look at the constituents of blood under the microscope. For me, during my BSc, I mostly sort of is learning like cool facts about how things work. And I was constantly being told to like write less beautifully and more concisely. Both um, of those subjects are actually very exploratory in very different ways. Empiricism being like the most extreme version of what we think of science being, um, literally discovering new things through experimentation. You know, literature being exploratory in a, in a different in a different way, thinking about things in new ways. Even in the instance of looking at blood under the microscope, seems like an incredibly scientific thing to be doing. I've got this quotation from um, the Indian Medical Gazette in the nineteenth century, and it's notes on the examination of malarial blood, and it is about complexity of examining blood successfully he uses Goethe's Faust as a way of explaining this. So he says, it might be supposed for the study of blood, it would suffice to prick a finger, place a drop of blood on a slide and examine it. But this is by no means the case. And then he quotes in the original German, which blood is a very special juice. And then he references Goethe's Faust, part one, line four, blah, 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 uh, 13, line 1387. And he says, so blood is a very special juice and will not yield up its secrets to such simple wooing. The technique of blood is most elaborate. Strikes me as bizarre because Faust doesn't really add very much to that. <laughs> but what I think is really interesting is essentially what's happening here, which is widespread in the 19th century at this time, is a use of literature to give authority to science. Um, And there's also this assumption that all of the people will be very familiar with Faust, and they'll know it in the original German as well. So in the 19th century, uh, a guy called Ronald Ross, who I will talk about later, rebrands Shakespeare as a scientist. What he's doing there is actually using literature in order to 
confer authority into what he's doing. Whereas now I think you're much more likely to feel that the other way around. What that does is it shows us how arbitrary and flexible this notion we have of science as an objective authority is and how it's actually really of our current cultural moment. And it's of our making, right? Because I think that's one of the really fascinating things is that as you've demonstrated, sort of literature and poetry was always there in the science. And you see this replicated all over the place because it's the same with um, sort of William James's foundational text on psychology that, you know, it'll be like, oh, and I'll just quickly defer to Tennyson, a couple of lines here to, to help make my point so that you can all follow me as I explain this kind of new science to you. Mm-hmm. And and you could say the same for Robert Nietzsche's work on sleep. You know, most of the examples, the historical examples he draws from are literary ones, you know, as though they're equivalent to other historical cases. Now, your PhD was on the Nobel Prize winning medical doctor, Ronald Ross. And I now work at a university, Liverpool, which has a Ronald Ross building. So when it's once again safe to do so, you can see Ross's microscope in the Museum of Liverpool. So... Can you tell us what drew you to Ross Milley and why is he an interesting figure for the field of literature and science? So I guess this is a win for my dual honours degree because I was actually introduced to Ross through my BSc. There is a cell in the hindgut of the mosquito named after him, the Ross cell. My lecturer probably made like a throwaway comment about him being like a character or something. And, and that made me really interested in him. And I think when I started my PhD, no one had really heard of him in the circles I was mixing in. And he seemed to have fallen in the cracks because he's a very interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary figure. But humanities scholars didn't think he was really there within their purview because he's a scientist. And scientists didn't really care that he'd written loads of poems. So the reason... I think is important to think about Ross is because he's such an interesting historical figure. So he was the first British person to win a Nobel Prize, which he won in 1902 for proving that mosquitoes transmit malaria. And he enjoys relative fame in the field of history of science, history of medicine for his malaria work. But he was also just this incredible beacon for what we would now call interdisciplinarity in that he moved in these incredibly literary circles. So he was friends with people that we would now consider to be canonical writers like Arthur Conan Doyle, Roger Kipling, H. Ryder Haggard, Poet Laureate John Macefield, H.G. Wells even. But not many people know who Ross is. I always think it's a really good pub quiz question, like who was the first British Nobel Prize winner? So he's actually writing at a time when there is increasing professionalisation in science. And yet he really pushes back against that. So he publishes a malaria textbook in the early 20th century in tandem with a book of his poem, which he wrote during that malaria research when he was in India. Are the poems kind of, are they about the topics of his scientific research? Like, can you read the poems as experiments, but in a different form? Yeah, some of the poems are about just his observations of what it's like doing research in India. A lot of them are about the struggles of the lone scientific genius (laughs) trying to solve humanity's problems. And they're written in a very romantic with a capital R fashion. 
But, you know, he talks about million murdering death, which is the mosquito in this instance, or and malaria. And one of the first things he does when he makes his discovery is, like, he runs to hit his desk, picks up a pen, and writes down this poem. The poem actually gets reprinted in lots of regional newspapers, but also in, like, The Lancet and the BMJ. Ross's phraseology becomes this kind of shorthand way of thinking about tropical diseases. He, he is himself a scientific communicator, which is quite rare for a scientist at the time. He's really obsessed with the narratives of science and the history of science. He was also president of the Poetry Society during the First World War. You know, he gives these lectures on science and poetry. For him, certainly, that he's much more interested in being famous for his poetry. He also writes novels and plays. And he really, this is what he wants to be remembered for, rather than having won the first British Nobel Prize. So like when he won the Nobel Prize and lots of people wrote to him is to send them his, his poems about the discovery because he wanted people to appreciate the full circumstances in which that research was done. I mean, I think that's that's a wonderful phrase, the full circumstances, because back to kind of your original thing about how do we define literature and science? And that is so difficult. But ultimately, that is what interdisciplinarity is doing, right? Is trying to restore the full picture, not these sort of isolated, siloed segments where we kind of are putting something out into the world and suggesting that's the whole story. But as we've we've come across multiple times, it never is because every, as you say, every statistic is embedded in some kind of narrative, in some kind of social circumstance. And so I love this idea of, of Ross as even in sort of every reply to each letter, insisting on the full picture. You know, when he's thinking about how these two disciplines, he wouldn't think of them as disciplines, but two modes of knowledge kind of collide together, he says, science needs to be taught by way of narratives of events that maybe haven't happened in exactly the way that we're saying that they happen, but that they have to be idealised, partly for brevity and partly for fixing the attentions of the public, um, which I think is a really interesting comment on SciComm there, this idea that narratives are actually really necessary to give meaning. And like you say, to almost to re-embed science within, within culture and make it meaningful again. So you've previously published on the spread of a supervirus and have recently published a LinkedIn article on what history can tell us about coronavirus. What does interdisciplinary have to offer us at this time and why might we want the public to consider more than emerging scientific recommendations and statistics? Yes, so we're in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, which is a sentence that's a bizarre thing to say on a podcast. Um, but I think actually... The last few um, days and weeks have really highlighted the utility of cross-disciplinary encounters. Uh, because again, it goes back to this, this need to write engaging, accessible and relatable science communication. And this need to embed science in culture again, to re-embed science in culture um, in order to give it meaning for people. In the article I wrote, I cited... A really interesting piece of psychom where the CDC actually used the idea of a zombie apocalypse in order to talk about emergency preparedness schemes. Um, so they called it like zombie preparedness 101 or something. But what I think is really interesting about 
that and you know it included like a blog um it included educational resources and posters and also this graphic novel following you know one family's adventures and how to get through this zombie apocalypse um interestingly the zombie apocalypse was caused by a virus z5n1 i think they called it but I think what's really interesting is they justified it by saying, you know, if you're prepared for a zombie apocalypse, you're generally speaking prepared for any other kind of emergency situation like a pandemic or a terrorist attack or an earthquake. Zombies are incredibly engaging for the majority of people. And although it seems like a very bizarre comment to say, um, a zombie apocalypse is actually oddly relatable <laughs> for many people because maybe it's a story that we tell ourselves all the time, right? There is, a, you know, a very healthy zombie disaster genre in film media and tv and books and we're all able to do that kind of thought experiment it's a thought experiment about an emergency situation like the one we're in but with zombies and people are able to enjoy that and to appreciate that kind of thought experiment in ways that for some reason is harder to do when it seems more realistic so there's two things here for me one is that zombies um, to use that Ross quote again, really fixes the attention in a way that other things don't because it is more exciting, it's more novel because of the unrealistic element. But equally, that lack of a, a basis in the real allows the catharsis, right? You can go through it and you can go through the attempted preparedness and all the rest of it, but actually you know you're not ever going to be subject to a zombie apocalypse and therefore it's okay. Whereas I think what people are struggling with right now is that it's it's both unreal and far too real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At work, I have a young colleague who's just finished her degree and she, uh, like many people, is obsessed with zombies, loves zombie films, talks extensively about her zombie apocalypse plans. And the other people that I work with are a bit older in the age range of you know, 50 to 60, and they just dismiss all this discussion of it as nonsense. Interestingly, we've revisited the idea of the zombie apocalypse in the last number of weeks saying, well, Olivia was right <laughs> to get us thinking about these plans. In talking about it and revisiting it, we've been able to identify who is actually the most prepared for the pandemic. And it's not the person you, you would expect as somebody who's been thinking laterally about responses to unknowable at this stage crises. Yeah, I think comical as that particular instance is it is a kind of example of the productive coming together of different ways of knowing as it were um so the other one that's actually again this pandemic has really highlighted these productive comings together are um i'm sure listeners will be aware um of the hand washing meme uh, that's emerged which is a poster of proper hand washing technique that you can replace the words with your favorite song lyrics. Um, and this is, you know, a bid to get people to wash their hands for at least 20 seconds and to do it properly. But it's actually incredibly effective. I find myself singing David Bowie's dance, magic dance, every time I wash my hands. And it does force you to abide by those scientific guidelines. And I think sometimes people need something else not just an appeal to your rational mind but either something which makes it relatable and emotional and appeals to that or something that gives you a little bit of <laughs> more motivation than just these are the stark facts we've gone with um out, out damn spot <laughs> but it's not that catchy unfortunately it's topical but not catchy so i'm thinking of replacing it Catherine, do you have one no i was just thinking that it's rather than facts 
it's giving you form, right? Because if you pick song lyrics, there is a rhythm to that. There is actually a structure that that is that is already known to you whereas the thing about those nhs guidelines like good as they are and i remember you know the original undoctored poster that was up in like all of the toilets and the hospitals that is just pure fact as far as you're concerned there is no no structure to it beyond the factual one that they wish you to understand and so we're back to your idea of what happens when you transfer meaning across formal boundaries and that that's where kind of the magic is um and not just the enjoyment but actually people doing it yeah which is uh, incredible and you know we live in such a saturated market um with, yeah. with the internet right you know if there are so many scientific guidelines and this is the other thing i think that is a real strength of humanities educations is training in, in close reading is training in how to be critical and interrogate um, those narratives as narratives, realizing that everything you're told um, has an agenda. You know, to the, who's it funded by? Who's it produced by? What is the authority of this? So I think it's a way in which actually humanities are essential in in times like these, where actually the science on its own isn't enough. Definitely, and so it brings us back to this kind of question of of language, which is something we talked a lot about in the introduction, the importance of language that's used to talk about disease and the profound effect it can have on the public imagination. Um, And I'm sort of thinking back to what you were saying about Ross and the, the, the chivalric rhetoric around imperialism and medicine. So how have you found this idea of the language used to talk about disease and the effect it has, how has that bit of importance in your own research? Yeah, hugely important. I mean, nine tenths of my research is probably thinking about the impact of language and how we think about and how we talk about disease in the period and subjects that I look at um, in the 19th century and tropical medicine and mostly tropical diseases that are occurring in the British colonies in India and Africa to humans. And you have, on the one hand, this self-fashioning of the people that are conducting this science as the nice of science, but you also have fashioning of the kinds of people that get these diseases. Um, so mm-hmm. one of the illnesses I look at is called sleeping sickness or African trypanosomiasis. It's a parasitic disease that's spread by the bite of a, a tsetse fly. But before we knew that, there was very little the little that was known about it. Um, and it was couched in superstition Um, And partly this was because it was thought to be a disease that only affected black people. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of there was a lot of language about superstition and about curses. And it was this kind of like medical curiosity. And then it started to affect the viability of the British Empire. And also there started to be case in in white colonizers, essentially. And then that changed the discourse about this illness. But before that, you know, you have uh, discussing Africa as a whole, as pathological. So you have this conflation between tropical diseases and the African landscape. And this kind of language is hugely stigmatising. And obviously there are parallels now. So we think about how how Trump has spoken about COVID-19 and he keeps calling it, you know, the Chinese disease and World Health Organization. The virus, very unhelpful. Mm. And the World Health Organization, I mean, to their immense credit, have come out and said, um, you know, it's really important that we think about how we talk about these diseases um, to avoid stigmatization, and we that we mustn't call it the uh, the Wuhan coronavirus. Um, we must call it by its designated um, name, COVID nineteen. This is important because how we 
talk about disease affects how we think about disease. You know, the kinds of metaphors that we use affect literally how we experience the world a lot of the time. So most people will be familiar with this medicine as war kind of metaphor. So we use a lot of military metaphors in medicine. Um, I know certainly when I was doing my biology degree and at school as well, you know, we think about the immune system in particular in this kind of very military way. We talk about battles and it's really hard to think in any other way. You know, I've said to people before, you know, oh, what if we didn't think about the immune system as like a battleground? And they're like, how else could you possibly think about it, right? Well, I mean, the BBC is is reporting um, when, you know, sort of symptoms and how to check for it. It's like, well, you may get a temperature as your body begins to fight the virus. Right. But now uh, microbiome studies has given us a new arsenal of metaphors, which I'm sure will come with their own problems. But what they show you is... The fact that this is um, an arbitrary designation, because now we're thinking about the body and the immune response as more like an ecosystem. If we think about the body as an ecosystem, then the immune response is radically, radically different, um, which then allows for different kinds of research questions to emerge. Well, and of course, now we have President Trump saying that, you know, he's a wartime president. So he's really just reinforcing this very binary way of thinking about responses to the pandemic. What kind of metaphors was Ross using when in terms of like the malaria crisis and looking into that? Do we see a lot of the war metaphors in Victorian uh, medical writings or are they using something different? Uh, They are very much using the war metaphors. Often it's to do actually with the role of scientists versus microorganisms. A war with nature. Um, there's a, there's a lot of discussions of war with nature. There's also within within proponents of tropical medicine or with parasitologists. There's also this leaning towards the knights at the round table kind of rhetoric. I think because it's a much more chivalric, civilized form of military engagement that's maybe a bit more palatable in in the wake of an empire that actually was causing a lot of genuine military engagements that obviously are not um, romantic and um, nice to think about. Lots of people are dying. Um, But there's also, on a more direct level, Ross writes his letter to another parasitologist called Patrick Manson, who's also very famous in the field. Um, And he's discussing what he's seeing beneath his microscope. Um, What he's seeing is three immune cells, three phagocytes, and a malaria parasite. And he's seeing that interaction happen. Um, And he says, in lots of capitals, and draws diagrams, and he writes, I won't swear I heard it, but I could see it howling as it ran away. Um, And then he says, one day I shall write a novel about it in the style of the Three Musketeers. So again, he's using this kind of like battle rhetoric, but he's also erring on the side of this kind of more literary, more palatable, more civilised version of that kind of military engagement. So even the metaphor is like a further literary styled version of of language. Like even the figure you're drawing isn't actually to the realistic thing. It's not the real version of war. It's the the literary tempered version of war. Yeah, or in Ross's... Also one and one for all. Mm. And in, in Ross's <laughs> case, this is part of his 
idealization you know things narratives must be idealized for fixing the attention of the public but so if we rewrote things in terms of as, as you say, the ecosystem version that microbiome studies is, is beginning to, uh, to get out there, what would that look like? What would that sound like? How, how do we talk about disease uh, in terms of an ecosystem? Much of that remains to be seen, I think. But one of the things that it does do is force us to redraw our boundaries of the human for a start. Um, what is self and non-self when you have an ecosystem in which there are microorganisms that coexist in that ecosystem and in fact some of those microorganisms are absolutely essential for your immune response not just in like training the immune response to recognize self from non-self but actually involved at a biochemical level in those pathways Um, what happens when we start to think about how our gut bacteria can affect our mental health um, by things that we eat can affect our mental health because uh, they are providing the kind of nutrients to grow particular populations of particular microorganisms. So it really allows us to think and encourages us to think um, about the human in a very different way and then by necessity about human health in a very different way Um, I think one of the things it does do um, is put the death knell in this model that we've had for a very long time of this clean, sanitised body. The human and it's clean and sanitised and we want to keep out all invaders. Everything that's non-self doesn't belong here. And I think that's just not tenable anymore. In the midst of this pandemic, I'm finding it hard to concentrate on very much at the moment. You know. No, I think this was an incredibly productive conversation. Given the circumstances, even. So I have chosen an extract from Henry Seaton Merriman's 1894 novel, With Edged Tools, to give you some context. This is a story that's as much about romance as it is about adventure. Um, It's about a young man that travels to Africa in order to earn enough money to marry the woman that he wants to marry. And and whilst there, he gets embroiled in this lucrative scheme of simiacine, which is this mythical compound that's supposed to be this kind of wonder drug that's going to make everyone really healthy and really strong. And it's incredibly lucrative and it grows only in this very specific secret grove in the middle of Africa. Um, And he embarks on this expedition and he gets a very shady business partner called Victor De Nervo. And so it's him and another British guy who are both kind of upheld as these classic British adventurers versus this, this shady partner they have. And eventually it comes out that Victor de Nervo has actually been keeping slaves under the guise of fair employment, um, which would have been very reprehensible to Victorian readerships at this point in history. And obviously was to the characters, and the characters say they'll wash their hands completely of him. But what happens is there's a depiction of sleeping sickness, and sleeping sickness, uh, which poor Victor de Nervo goes on to contract, is pitched as a kind of divine judgment um, on his sins of of keeping slaves Uh, but the reason I've chosen it is that it was actually referenced as a good depiction of sleeping sickness in the Indian Medical Gazette um, which I think is a really fascinating and hopefully once I've read it you will too. 
Deneuve spoke from time to time, but he could see the effect that his hissing speech had upon his companion, and in time he gave it up. He told haltingly of the horrors of the Simiacene plateau, of the last grim tragedy acted there, how, at last, blinded with his blood, maimed, stupefied by agony, he'd been hounded down the slope by a yelling, laughing horde of torturers. There was not much to be done, and presently Gaiascard moved away to his camp chair, where he sat staring into the night. Sleep was impossible. Strong, hardened, weather-beaten man that he was, his nerves were all a-tingle, his flesh creeping and jumping with horror. Gradually he collected his faculties enough to begin to think about the future. What was he to do with this man? He could not take him to Loango. He could not risk that Jocelyn or even Maurice Gordon should look upon this horror. Joseph had crept back into the inner room where he had no light and could not be heard breathing hard, wide awake in his hammock. Suddenly the silence was broken by a loud cry. Oscard! Oscard! In a moment, Joseph and Oscard were at the bedside. Denervo was sitting up and he grabbed at Oscard's arm. For God's sake, he cried. For God's sake, man, don't let me go to sleep. What do you mean? asked Oscard. They both thought he had gone mad. Sleep had nothing more to do with Denervo's eyes, protruding, staring, terrible to look at. Don't let me go to sleep, he repeated. Don't, don't. All right, said Oscard soothingly. All right, we'll look after you. He fell back on the bed in the flickering light, his eyeballs gleamed. Then quite suddenly he rose to a sitting position, again with a wild effort. I've got it! I've got it! he cried. Got what? Sleeping sickness. The two listeners knew of this strange disease. Oscard had seen a whole village devastated by it, the inhabitants lying about their own doors, stricken down by a deadly sleep from which they never woke. It is known as the, on the west coast of Africa, and the cure for it is unknown. Hold me, cried Denervo. Don't let me sleep. His head fell forward even as he spoke, and the staring wide eyes that could not sleep made a horror of him. Oscar took him by the arms and held him in a sitting position. Denervo's fingers were clutching at his sleeve. Shake me, God, shake me. Then Oscar took him in his strong arms and set him on his feet. He shook him, gently at first, but as the dread somnolence crept, he shook harder, until the mutilated inhuman head rolled about the shoulders. It's a sin to let that man live, exclaimed Joseph, turning away in horror. It's a sin to let any man die, replied Oscard, and with this, his great strength, he shook Denervo like a garment. And so Victor Denervo died. His stained soul left his body in Gaiascard's hands, and the big Englishman shook the corpse trying to wake it from a sleep which knows no earthly waking. So, after all, heaven stepped in and laid its softening hand on the judgment of men. But there was a strange irony in the mode of death. It was strange that this man, who never could have closed his eyes again, should have been stricken down by the sleeping sickness. We've come to that special moment in the episode where it is time for some final words. Ziggurat. Pillow. And those are our final words. Thanks for joining us for the third of our second series of Lit Side Podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, or if you want to join in on the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LitSidePod. Don't forget to tweet using the hashtag LitSidePod. You can even email us at litsipod at gmail.com.